Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your friend, your uh, companion, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and your prophet, Michael Ian Black. I say prophet because I have prophesied from the beginning that this thing was going to turn murder-suicide. We were going to get some sort of bleak, horrid murder-suicide. And last episode, that's exactly what we got. Of the worst imaginable kind. Of the variety that you wouldn't wish on... uh, I mean, it's cliche to say your worst enemy. You might wish it on your worst enemy, you know, especially if your worst enemy had, you know, some shitty kids, you know, because then you'd be like, well, I hope something terrible happens to my worst enemy. But more than that, I'll be glad. I'll be glad that we don't have to deal with those shitty kids anymore. Well, so that's exactly what happened. Uh, And Jude is not our worst enemy, nor is Sue. They are our boon companions. And yet they have found themselves now dealing with unspeakable tragedy. Their firstborn, Jude's firstborn, Jude Jr., which is, let's acknowledge, a a mouthful, also known as Little Father Time, had gotten it into his head that everything was terrible. It was the fault of the children. And the only way to alleviate that situation uh, would be to hang the younger two children, followed by hanging himself. It was bad, as I said in the last episode. And that is my literary analysis of the situation, that it is bad. And as I said last time, it doesn't, it didn't feel earned to me. There was no reason for him to do this, really. They had had a bad day. 
You know, it was rainy. They'd been kind of kicked out of the lodging they were staying in. Sue had revealed to Jude Jr. that she was expecting another child that would have been four mouths to feed in addition to the adult two. The morbid little kid got all freaked out about it. Sue, in all honesty, did not do much to alleviate the situation. She didn't say calm down. She didn't say it'll be all right. She basically said, yeah, it sucks. Next morning, she goes to fetch Jude, who's staying at an inn, and uh, she comes back. Boom. We've got three little Michael Hutchinses. And I don't mean to be glib about it. I was pretty bummed out last time. But what are we going to do? You know, it's a book. We're we're not going to wallow in it. We have to see what happens. Because we are left with these people who have now lost everything, They are, as I said in the previous episode, without faith, without hope, without direction, other than the fact that Sue is pregnant again. Will this baby even see the light of day? Hard to say. Will there be another murder-suicide? Will Sue kill herself and the child within her? Again, hard to say. Uh, Certainly seems within the realm of possibility. But there's a bunch more pages left and the worst thing in the world has happened. So now we have to now they have to figure out, well, how are we going to carry on? And Hardy has to figure out what further tortures can I inflict on these poor people who really have done nothing wrong to merit this. They are both uh, they, they, they are both living, as Oprah might say, in their own truths, right? They have bucked the system at every turn just to live the life that they wanted for themselves. And this is the reward they get. That'll show you. That'll show you, Shakespeare. That'll show you. So the last, where we left off last time was Jude trying to soothe Sue. Sue's been saying basically, you know, it all sucks, which she's right. She's saying that that life is saying to them, you can't, you shan't learn, you shan't labor, you shan't love. I'm quoting, now I'm back to the book. He tried to soothe her by saying, that's bitter of you, darling. She says, but it's true. And I will admit that I laughed when he said, well, that's bitter of you, darling, because look, I mean, if ever you're going to be bitter, this might be the time. This might be the time with your children's corpses laid out to feel a little bit better, you know, just, just take a moment to indulge maybe without the criticism from your husband. That's a little bitter of you, dear. She says, but it's true. Now we continue. Thus they waited and she went back again to her room. The baby's frock, shoes, and socks, which had been lying on a chair at the time of his death, she would not now have removed, though Jude would fain have got them out of her sight. But whenever he touched them, she implored him to let them lie, and burst out almost savagely at the woman of the house when she also attempted to put them away." Uh, and you'll remember, she's not even supposed to be there. Like the husband last night, the previous night, had said, get these people out of my house. They're trash. And they, the woman had been like, all right, look, you can stay the night. After Sue had begged, you can stay the night, but you got to go in the morning. So now the woman's basically like stuck with this, uh, this woman and her husband, whose children have just <laughs> died in her home. And she's probably like, you know, now what am I going to do? How am I going to? 
you know, I kind of would like to get my life back to normal a little bit here. But what's she going to do? Jude dreaded her dull, apathetic silences almost more than her paroxysms. Why don't you speak to me, Jude? She cried out after one of these. Don't turn away from me. I can't bear the loneliness of being out of your looks. There, dear, here I am, he said, putting his face close to hers. Yes, oh, my comrade, our perfect union, our two-in-oneness is now stained with blood, shadowed by death. That's all. Ah, but it was I who incited him, really, though I didn't know I was doing it. I talked to the child as one should only talk to people of mature age. I said the world was against us, that it was better to be out of life than in it at this price, and he took it literally, and I told him I was going to have another child. It upset him. Oh, how bitterly he upbraided me. Why did you do it, Sue? Yeah, good question, Sue. (laughs) Like that, you know, I'm not, I'm not a perfect parent by any means, but I certainly know better than to say to my young children, the world, it is better to be out of life than in it, right? I feel like even I, imperfect parent that I may be, knows better than to put thoughts of death into his own child. Not necessarily because it would spur my child to commit murder-suicide, but because it might make the child, at the very least, worry about my own mental stability. Like, I'm not one to censor myself that much in front of my children, but I do think there is a little bit of discretion Uh, particularly when you're in a bad mood, you know, and everything seems a little hopeless. At a mature age, you know that's going to pass. Like Sue knows, in the morning, things are going to look a little bit better. Yeah, it sucks that they got kicked out, but they got to stay the night. Yeah, she's going to have another kid. That should be a cause for happiness. They're poor already. They're not going to get much more poor than they already are, right? Like they'll figure it out. But instead, she takes it out on her morbid little kid, and this is the result. Why did you do it, Sue? I can't tell. It was that I wanted to be truthful. I couldn't bear deceiving him as to the facts of life. And yet I wasn't truthful, for with a false delicacy, I told him too obscurely. Why was I half wiser than my fellow women and not entirely wiser? Why didn't I tell him pleasant untruths instead of half realities? It was my want of self-control so that I could neither conceal things nor reveal them. Your plan might have been a good one for the majority of cases, (laughs) only in our peculiar case, it chanced to work badly, perhaps. Perhaps, Jude? Perhaps. I would say, again, without criticizing your wife in this uh, terrible time, we need not put the modifier Perhaps. In fact, it did work out badly. If you recall, at only moments ago, I described the situation as bad. Being the Victorianologist that I am, I felt like uh, I understood that it was, in fact, bad and not perhaps bad. It is fully and unconditionally bad. And then Jude continues, he must have known sooner or later. And I was just making my baby darling a new frock, and now I shall never see him in it, and never talk to him any more. My eyes are so swollen that I can scarcely see. 
and yet little more than a year ago I called myself happy. We went about loving each other too much, indulging ourselves to utter selfishness with each other. We said, do you remember that we would make a virtue of joy? I said it was nature's intention, nature's law, and raison d'etre that we should be joyful in what instincts she afforded us, instincts which civilization had taken upon itself to thwart. What dreadful things, I said. And now fate has given us this stab in the back for being such fools as to take nature at her word. Well, that's a mouthful, and it is curious as to, I mean, my curiosity here is piqued about Hardy's own attitude towards joy. As you know, this is the first and only Thomas Hardy book I have ever read, though I was admittedly assigned Tess of the Durbervilles in high school and did not read it. And we watched the movie, and I don't remember a thing about it. But what I know about Hardy The little that I know is that he is known for a kind of bleakness. He is not the most frivolous of writers. So it makes me curious as to his own ideas of nature, his own ideas of nature's law, intention, and raison d'etre. Because as a humanist, which I consider myself, and I think Hardy was something of, it leads me to believe that, that idea of humanism, and maybe I have humanism entirely incorrect, but that there is a kind of benign human spirit that is imbued in us from nature. That uh, benign spirit may in fact uh, imbue all creatures, great and small, as the expression goes. But in humans, we have the uh, unique ability to express it in manifold ways, one of which is to indulge ourselves in utter selfishness with each other. Now, is Sue referring to here the state of their relationship, their matrimonial bliss, the idea that they were going to cast aside society's doubts about them and just live as a joyful couple? Or is she saying that in giving themselves to connubial bliss, uh, that they somehow deserve this fate. I don't quite understand that because you could read the nature uh, that, that making a virtue of joy in a couple ways. You could say that just by living as they were living, that they violated nature's law, intention, and raison d'etre. Or you could say by having this sexual relationship which Sue had been avoiding, 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 and to the point where I was going, Sue's gay, and I'm still not sure that isn't the case, that by indulging that selfishness, which seems to me could not be violating nature's law, because we know that nature wants above anything else to replicate itself. Nature wants to exist, which is to say life wants to exist, and life's entire purpose seems to be to continue. So by creating new life, There's no reason to think that they would be doing anything that could be considered immoral or against nature. And yet, here they are. Perhaps what she's saying is that we wanted to believe something about nature. We wanted to believe that joy is the intention, law, and raison d'etre. 
But in fact, that was no more true than the half realities she told Little Father Time. That joy is contained within nature, and that is one half of the story. But you are obscuring the other half, which is the pain and suffering that comes with it. You don't get one without the other. It is a package deal. And so by saying the dreadful things that, you know, she says, what dreadful things I said. By saying that we, that uh, I was happy, by saying that we would make a virtue of joy, she was in fact inviting disaster. She was crossing nature in that way. And nature now is stabbing her in the back for being such fools as to take nature at her word. Nature's like, yeah, you think you're happy now? Here, have, ha, you know, have a little shiv in the back. There. How you like, how you like me now? How you like nature now, Shakespeare? Hey, Shakespeare, you want to take a little break? Welcome back. I've got a little more tea. I'm ready to keep going. She sank into a quiet contemplation till she said, it is best, perhaps, that they should be gone. Yes, I see it is. Better that they should be plucked fresh than stay to wither away miserably. Yes, replied Jude. (laughs) I mean, it's one thing for her to muse on it and say, well, maybe it's better that they're dead because this way they had a short but fruitful life from which they were plucked. Maybe it's better than to stay and wither the way we have. And Jude's like, yeah, probably. (laughs) Which... All right. I mean, I know he's trying to make her feel better, I guess, but it seems it seems a little bit out of character for her, for him to agree so readily to that proposition. Yes, replied Jude. Some say that the elders should rejoice when their children die in infancy. Who says that? Who says that? I've never heard that. I mean, was it so terrible then? Was the state of uh, life so terrible? that you should rejoice when your children die in infancy? I mean, Judas had it rough. He hasn't had it that rough. He hasn't starved. He hasn't wasted, let's say it, put it that way, other than mentally. You know what I mean? Like he has, he's had a challenging life, but in a kind of analytical way. You know, he's made a living for himself. He's found love not once, but twice. He's had children. He's had a roof over his head and enough food to eat. How bad has it really been? It's been a challenging life, but it hasn't been all that bad. That you should rejoice when their children die in infancy. Sue says, but they don't know. Oh, my babies, my babies, could you be alive now? You may say the boy wished to be out of life or he wouldn't have done it. It was not unreasonable for him to die. It was part of his incurably sad nature. Poor little fellow. But then the others, my own children and yours. So now Sue's like, 
uh, my kids, <laughs> my kids didn't commit suicide. It was your kid, your miserable kid with that, with that. Oh, oh what's the word I'm looking for? Harrow, Harrow, no. Ah, ah. Anyway, that terrible person, Arabella, she's turning it on him now. It's your fault that this happened. We can see her, her, her attention now going to Jude and laying the blame at his doorstep. Again, Sue looked at the hanging little frock and at the socks and shoes and her figure quivered like a string. I am a pitiable creature, she said, good neither for earth nor heaven any more. I am driven out of my mind by things. What ought to be done? She stared at Jude and tightly held his hand. Nothing can be done, he replied. Things are as they are and will be brought to their destined issue. She paused. Yes. Who said that, she asked heavily. It comes in the chorus of the Agamemnon. It has been in my mind continually since this happened. My poor Jude, how you've missed everything. You more than I, for I did get you to think you should know that by your unassisted reading and yet be in poverty and despair. After such momentary diversions, her grief would return in a wave. So she's saying he has missed out even more than she because he applied himself to his own betterment and received nothing in return. There was so much more available to him. And so to have missed those heights and now to be brought to these lows encompasses a much broader spectrum of grief than Sue who never aspired to much. So she is living within a narrower band of life than he. And, you know, it's kind of bullshit because Sue, although she didn't have the same aspirations, is a learned woman in her own right and has certainly wrestled with the same questions as Jude and, in fact, wrestled more deeply in some ways, so much so that she was able to get him to abandon his own faith. She didn't do it maliciously, of course. She only wanted him to see the world as she saw it, and finally he did. So to say that he has missed everything more than her, let's say, is it, it's, it's, it's not really true. She dreamed much bigger than he did because she was able to see outside of the water in which she was swimming. He was not until he did. The jury duly came. I don't know what the jury is. Uh, you know, something, something bureaucratic. The jury duly came and viewed the bodies. The inquest was held and next arrived the melancholy morning of the funeral. Accounts in the newspapers had brought to the spot curious idlers who stood apparently counting the window panes and the stones of the walls. Doubt of the real relations of the couple added zest to their curiosity. So now they're becoming tabloid fixtures, Jude and Sue, the poor, illegitimate couple with the three dead kids. And people are just kind of gawking outside their house the way people do. 
Sue had declared that she would follow the two little ones to the grave, but at the last moment she gave way, and the coffins were quietly carried out of the house while she was lying down. Jude got into the vehicle, and it drove away, much to the relief of the landlord, who now had only Sue and her luggage remaining on his hands, which he hoped to also clear of later on in the day, and so to have freed his house from the exasperating notoriety it had acquired during the week through his wife's unlucky admission of these strangers. In the afternoon, he privately consulted with the owner of the house, and they agreed that if any objection to it arose from the tragedy which had occurred there, they would, oh, which had occurred there, they would try to get its number changed. Well, you know, it could be good for business, you know, the way haunted houses can be good for business. You know, this is, this is the scene of the notorious murder-suicide of the three folly children you know, marketed correctly, that could fetch a pretty penny among the Victorian goths, the knaves and 'er ne'er-do-wells who populate England's underbelly, might decide, hey, that could be neat to, to, to stay in that odd house. When Jude had seen the two little boxes, one containing little Jude and the other, the two smallest, deposited in the earth, He hastened back to Sue, who was still in her room, and he therefore did not disturb her just then. Feeling anxious, however, he went again about four o'clock. The woman thought she was still lying down, but returned to him to say that she was not in her bedroom after all. Her hat and jacket, too, were missing. She had gone out. Well, you're probably thinking what I'm thinking. Now Sue has gone and murdered herself and her baby. Hard to say. I mean, if in fact that is the case, I'm not going to get all bent out of shape about it. Last episode was too rough on me. Last episode was too heartbreaking. And this episode, if Sue is dead, I'm going to steel myself against despairing emotions. I'm just going to be your humble narrator and I'm not going to get all a quiver from it. But first, let's take a little break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back on Obscure. Now we're going to see where Sue has gone off to. uh, And let's just hope for the best. Jude hurried off to the public house where he was sleeping. She had not been there. Then, bethinking himself of possibilities, he went along the road to the cemetery, which he entered, and crossed to where the internments had recently taken place. The idlers who had followed to the spot by reason of the tragedy were all gone now. A man with a shovel in his hands was attempting to earth in the common grave of the three children, but his arm was held back by an expostulating woman who stood in the half-filled hole. It was Sue, whose colored clothing, which she had never thought of changing for the mourning he had bought, suggested to the eye a deeper grief than the conventional garb of bereavement could express. So she's not dressed in black. She's in whatever she's in, colorful clothing. And she's standing in the hole as he's trying to fill it. A mad woman. He's filling them in and he shan't till I've seen my little ones again. She cried wildly when she saw Jude. I want to see them once more. Oh, Jude, please, Jude. I want to see them. I didn't know you would let me let them be taken away while I was asleep. You said perhaps I should see them once more before they were screwed down, and then you didn't, but took them away. Oh, Jude, you are cruel to me, too. She's been wanting me to dig out the grave again and let her get to the coffins, said the man with the spade. She ought to be took home by the look of her. She's hardly responsible, poor thing, seemingly. Can't dig him up again now, ma'am. Do you go home with your husband and take it quiet and thank God that there'll be another soon to swage your grief? But Sue kept asking piteously, Can't I see them once more? Just once, can't I? Only just one little minute, Jude. It would not take long, and I should be so glad, Jude. I will be so good and not disobey you ever any more, Jude, if you will let me. I would go home quietly afterwards and not want to see them any more, can't I? Why can't I? Thus she went on. Jude was thrown into such acute sorrow that he almost felt he would try to get the man to Essede, but it could do no good and might make her still worse, and he saw that it was imperative to get her home at once. So he coaxed her and whispered tenderly and put his arm round her to support her till she helplessly gave in and was induced to leave the cemetery. He wished to obtain a fly to take her back in, but economy being so imperative, she deprecated his doing so, and they walked along slowly, Jude in black crepe, she in brown and red clothing. They were to have gone to a new lodging that afternoon, but Jude saw that it was not practicable, And in course of time, they now entered the hated house. Sue was at once got to bed and the doctor sent for. Jude waited all the evening downstairs. At a very late hour, the intelligence was brought to him that a child had been prematurely born and that it, like the others, 
was a corpse. Oh, God. That is the end of chapter two with a new dead baby. So there we are. I mean, you know, there we are. I said at the beginning of the episode, we don't know if this child will ever enter the world. Well, it has, but not in the way that we would have wanted. I mean, I said I was, I said I was going to be level-headed about this, and I am. It is not Sue who is dead. It is the child born prematurely, and the child, like the others, is a corpse. Not good. Again, I will reiterate, bad. The situation is bad. And now, I don't even know how the couple that lives in that house stays in that house. If I'm them, I'm gone. I'm gone the next morning. I don't even care if Jude and Sue are still there. It is the Amityville horror. That is what's going on in that house right now. It is the house uh, on Haunting Hill. Is that what it's called? It is any of those houses from any horror movie. You know, it is officially Rosemary's baby territory. That's where we are. It's all bad. All new life extinguished. All hope extinguished. They still have love, but for how long? Sue going mad, clearly going mad, and will probably continue to descend into utter madness. Jude, I don't know what's going on with him. I mean, he's he's being very rational about the whole thing, very even-keeled, even-tempered, but we know Jude, and we know his sensitivity, and we know his questioning nature, and whatever questions he are now arising in his head, the answers... Uh, that he comes up with are going to be bleak. There's not that much of the book left, but there's enough. There's enough for things to continue to go downhill for both of them. (sighs) You know, it's funny. You read this whole thing, knowing it's going to come to a bad end, and we have fun with it, and we joke and we josh, and we're like, this is great. We're having a great time at their expense. But then when things get bad, you're like, I feel... I feel I feel guilty about these fictional characters uh, that lived 120 years ago. Uh, and, you know, I have no business feeling bad for them because they don't exist. That's what I have to keep telling myself now. They're just uh, fictions created in the life of a morbid writer. The book was trashed when it came out, is my understanding. It was banned in places, is my understanding. It was the last novel he ever wrote, is my understanding. After that, he turned to poetry. I don't know what his poetry's like. I hope it's a little more upbeat than this shit, because this is bad. So we'll leave them there. We'll leave Jude downstairs in further mourning. We'll leave Sue upstairs contemplating the stillbirth that she uh, has just produced. Maybe get a snack, you guys, you know? I'll tell you what's terrific. People don't, people don't appreciate this enough. A McDonald's ice cream cone. Fabulous. I think it's the same thing as they, they make the shakes with. I don't know if it's the same thing or not. If it's exactly the same or if it's a little bit thinner, whatever it is. But the McDonald's vanilla ice cream cone, 99 cents or whatever it is, fabulous. Fabulous snack. Do yourselves a favor. You know, turn this shit off. Go out. Get in your car. Go get yourself a McDonald's ice cream cone. You know, slurp that sucker down. You'll feel a lot better about everything. Because I'm telling you right now, next week, there's going to be another bummer episode. 
And you're going to be sitting here, sitting there thinking, you know what I wish I had right now to make me feel better? A McDonald's ice cream cone like I got last week. Maybe before you listen to next week's episode, pre-buy the ice cream cone. Just have it at the ready. Just put on your headphones or, you know, maybe you listen in your car. Have one hand on the steering wheel, one hand on your ice cream cone because you're going to need it. On the next bleak as fuck episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, why did you make it all the way to the credits? Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedrin. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black.